want to remind you that we are studying through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and this morning we come to Daniel chapter 4. The king that is dominant in the book of Daniel is that of King Nebuchadnezzar. We were introduced to him in chapter 1 as he went to Judah and took captive an indiscriminate number of young men that he claimed that he was going to train and educate for his personal service. In chapter 2, Daniel comes to the forefront again as King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and accurately interprets that dream. In chapter 3, we studied about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those are their Hebrew names, thrown into the fiery furnace. It's a very memorable children's story that we tell children in dramatic fashion and how these three young Hebrew boys were rescued from that fiery furnace. We don't know where Daniel was in Daniel chapter 3. I assure you, had he been there, he would have been in the fiery furnace with them. But he is mysteriously absent. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is dreaming again. And Daniel is called in once again to interpret that dream. We have a lot of scripture we want to cover this morning, so I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open and read with me as we move through it quickly. If, if you uh, need to look on a Bible with somebody there around you, I hope they'll be a friend enough to let you slide close by and just kind of follow along as we read together. But I need to begin the message this morning by asking a question. It is a rhetorical question. That is, you don't have to answer. I don't want to see a show of hands. I need to plant a seed that is going to be revealed later on in the sermon. And the question is this. Is Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? Think about it. Is Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? We're going to answer that question as we come to the end of the reading of Daniel chapter 4. Now, before we read this passage together, I want to give you a commentary on Daniel 4. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Job in the Old Testament, chapter 33, and look at verse 14. Job 33, verse 14. Listen to what Job said. Actually, this is a friend of Job's that's speaking, but this is what he says. Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. Verse 15, in a dream, a vision of the night when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. Verse 17, he gives dreams to men at night in order that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. Those few verses there in Job 33 are actually a summary of what Daniel 4 is all about. Now in Daniel 4, begin the reading with me 
at verse 1 and listen carefully. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. May your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs and how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Daniel chapter 4 is a unique chapter in the Bible. It's unique for this reason. Daniel chapter 4, we believe, was written by King Nebuchadnezzar. Nowhere else in the Bible will you find this kind of discretion given to the authorship of Holy Scripture. But what you and I are reading together, we believe, was actually a decree that Nebuchadnezzar wrote about in his own life and sent out to the inhabitants of Babylon. And he is about to reveal to us the nature of his dream and then how the dream was lived out. And then we're going to see the end result of that dream. There are actually four transitions in this chapter. And I encourage you to write this down and sort of move with me through as we read it. Number one, we're going to see the dream received. Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar received that night vision from God. And we're going to see what that dream was all about. The dream received. And then we're going to see Daniel come in. And Daniel is going to reveal the dream. Exactly what it means. So we're going to say that's the dream revealed. Later on in the chapter, we're going to see the dream realized as it is played out in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And then last, just those last few verses of Daniel 4, we're going to see the dream redeemed. And that's a lot of R's, isn't it? It's just sort of an alliterated outline that just kind of guides our thoughts as we move through this together. The dream received, the dream revealed, the dream realized, and then the dream redeemed. The first thing we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar is admitting what I'm telling you came about at a time when I was very comfortable. I was living in the palace. I had no major concerns. What that means is that he'd fought all the wars. He'd conquered most of the land that he was interested in conquering. He had proven himself as quote unquote, get this now, sovereign over the ancient world. Nobody else was his rival. Nobody else was his enemy. He had conquered all the people that he wanted to conquer. And his, his, his kingdom was flourishing that he says here. Now, now you, when you read that, you think, well, my goodness, how, how flourishing could it be? I want you to listen to this very carefully. Babylon, ancient Babylon, was probably the premier kingdom that the world has ever seen. 
There are states here in North America, in the United States, that are smaller than ancient Babylon. Over 300 square miles this city occupied. It had a wall that went around the entire city. Now you think about building a wall around 300 square miles. We hear a lot about building a wall these days, do we not? Nebuchadnezzar built a wall. That wall, by the way, was 350 feet tall. It was 87 feet wide. Now, just for comparison's sake, 87 feet wide, that's a six-lane highway. Large enough for chariots to run around the wall for, for sentinels and military to keep watch as the enemy approached. And so they had this wall built around. There were 12 gates and the gates were made of bronze, pure bronze, and embroidered in the gates were gold, silver, diamonds, and rubies. I want to ask you, take me somewhere today where when you walk in that city, you will see this kind of ostentatiousness. Look it up. It's a relevant word. It was over the top. I mean the bronze gates with the silver and gold. You just don't see anything. Now you, you, see, you see miniature versions of it, the Taj Mahal and India, all the other places that we could talk about. But Babylon was amazing. The Euphrates River ran right through the middle of ancient Babylon. They had locks in the river. They could control the water levels. They would allow the water to spread out into their and irrigate their fertile land so that they could grow crops. They grew crops in ancient Babylon. And then they had ways to divert the water that they did not want to the Tigris River. You see, I'm telling you all this to say that this is not backward hillbillies living out in the desert, riding on a camel, living in a tent. When he says, I was flourishing in my palace and things were going really good, I want you to know just how really good it was. His palace is going to come into play in just a few minutes as we continue to read. And you say, well, I hurry, wish you'd hurry up and get there. I'm, I'm rushing as fast as I can. He didn't have just one palace in Babylon. He had three. And the largest palace that Nebuchadnezzar occupied are you ready for this? It was over 100,000 square feet. Now, when we see a home, 10,000, 14,000 square feet, we say that's a mansion. But we're talking about a palace. 100,000 square feet here. There were over 50 public buildings, over 50 temples, I'd say, and many more public buildings in Babylon. And there was this main thoroughfare that ran right down the middle of the ancient city that would have been 35 football fields long. And that was just like the main thoroughfare in Babylon. This place would knock your socks off. This would be a place that many of us would want to go visit. It does not exist anymore. The place exists. But of course it has lost a lot of its glamour and its glory over time, as Babylon would fall, we'll read about that, Lord willing. If we get to Daniel chapter 5, I'll tell you about the fall of Babylon. But at this time in Daniel 4, this was the pinnacle. This was at the top 
of when Babylon was at its best. Now, I haven't even talked about the hanging gardens of Babylon. I, I need to tell you about that. I'll just reference it. Can't go into all the details, but Nebuchadnezzar had a wife who came from a foreign country that had mountains. Any of you know what the modern-day Iraq is like? It's just sand and desert, right? No mountains. She got homesick. She threatened to go home. And he said, oh, no, I'll build you a mountain. And the hanging gardens of Babylon were over 400 feet tall, had all of this beautiful foliage and planted all different kinds of a variety of flowers that would bloom at different times of the year. He built that in tribute to his wife. And the hanging gardens of Babylon, you remember, was one of the ancient wonders of the world. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So when he says things were good, I'm here to tell you things were good. His economy was through the roof. You talk about the Dow Jones spiking, you know, the seed. There was no ceiling for his economy and all that he was experiencing. But then he's having these dreams that trouble him. You would say, how in the world can he be troubled with, with things going on as well as they're going? Well, listen to what he says. I want you to slip, skip down to verse uh, 10. Verse 10. We'll skip as much as we can, but I want to fill in the gaps here. Nebuchadnezzar's brought in all of his cabinet members. They're mentioned here as magicians and Chaldeans and sorcerers. And he says, I need you to interpret the dream for me. A common theme in the book of Daniel. They can't do it, so he calls in Daniel. Now look at what he says in verse 10. These were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Do you remember what his other dream was? Statue, remember? Statue of gold that turned out to be reference to Nebuchadnezzar himself. But, but continue reading. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. Verse 13, I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. Heaven, he's talking about an angel, so to speak. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground. But with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be, let him be drenched. Did you pick up on that? The pronoun just changed. As Nebuchadnezzar is telling about his dream... He is relaying exactly to Daniel what the dream is and he's talking about the angelic messenger giving instructions to cut down the tree. And so far everything he said is cut it down, cut down its branches, take off its foliage and so forth and so on. But now it says may, what does it say? Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind Last time I checked, the trees have minds. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know, listen to this now, 
that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. The end of verse 17 is actually a theme in the book of Daniel and it refers to the sovereignty of God. That the Most High, reference the Most High God, is the one who chooses to extend power to individuals from time to time. And he says in verse 18, This is the dream which I, the king Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's Babylonian name, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you're able. For a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Are you aware that never once in the Bible is a pagan deity referred to as holy? Holiness is reserved for God himself. And Nebuchadnezzar is admitting that as he refers to Daniel and says, you're holy. And even though it's capital, uh, lowercase g, God's plural, He is actually subliminally, even though he doesn't realize what he's doing, making reference to the holiness of God Almighty present in the life of Daniel. Now listen to what happens. Here's the dream revealed. Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. Here's why Daniel's thoughts alarmed him. It's because that when Daniel heard Nebuchadnezzar tell him what the dream was, I think Daniel knew immediately what it meant. Daniel realizes that he's going to have to confront the king and give him an interpretation to the king that the king is probably not going to like. It's not going to be a popular message. And in that moment of confrontation, Daniel does something that I think all of us need to pick up on. He gives us a model for how to confront someone the right way. Now, many of us probably will go through life never confronting a soul. But some of us in this room this morning... By nature of our position, there are times where we have to actually bring to light a situation with an individual or multiple individuals and say, we got to deal with something. We've got to handle this the right way. And what I'm going to do is I talk to you about the dream revealed here as Daniel reveals the interpretation is I want to show you what Daniel does And I want to show you how we can actually mimic what Daniel does when we have to confront someone. Now, let me say this. First of all, don't indiscriminately go confronting somebody. (laughs) I can see somebody taking notes here and say, well, I I can do that. And so you just go out and if somebody you don't know, you confront. No, no, no. When you confront someone, there are other scriptures that need to come in play, like Ephesians 4, like Galatians 6 that tell us that when we are going to deal with restoring a brother or sister in Christ, that we do it with kindness, that we do it with compassion, that we do it from a spiritually mature perspective. And let me say this. If you feel that you are led to deal with that confrontation, it needs to be someone that you know well. 
You need, and if you don't know them well, but you feel like it, need, then it needs to be dealt with in the right way, especially if it's a church-related matter. Now, that's something a little different, but I'm talking about on a personal basis, individually, if you've got to make sure it's somebody that you know intimately. And the first thing I want to do here is that you fall on that verse in Ephesians that says that we're to speak the truth in love. Let the word truth be an acronym for us here. T-R-U-T-H. The first T stands for think it through. Your translation of the Bible may even say that Daniel sat here for a solid hour before he spoke to the king. Think through every angle, every situation of what you're going to say here and choose your words wisely. Remember, Daniel was, was always praised as being one who had discretion and diplomacy and tact. And I love that about Daniel. I want that in my own life. If I, if I have to confront someone, I, I, I want to pray, Lord, give me the right words to say, and may it be said with tact and diplomacy. And I think that's what Daniel is doing, is he's choosing his words correctly. The first T stands for think it through. R, in truth, stands for reveal your heart. Look at what happens here. The king responded, said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, my Lord... If only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Daniel's revealing his heart here as he says that. You know what he's saying to, king, to the king? King, I wish this was referring to your adversaries. I, I wish it was referring to your enemies, those people who didn't like you. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is in his 70s. He's coming to the end of his reign. Daniel, we believe, is in his 50s. And because the two have worked together so closely over this period of time, remember he went to Babylon, taken you know, captive there probably when he was in his teens. Daniel has spent the majority of his life in Babylon. I think he was actually fond of the king. I think he cared about him. And he reveals his heart here as he says, I, I wish I could say this applied to those people who stood against you, king, but that's not the fact. Look, look at what he says next. He says, verse 20, the tree that you saw which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt and whose branches of birds of the sky lodged. Now pause there and let me give you the you in truth. You know what he's doing? He's seeking to understand Nebuchadnezzar's situation. He's repeating to himself exactly what he realizes that the dream was about. The dream was about everything that Nebuchadnezzar had been blessed with. All the things that were good about the dream. And Daniel is kind of putting himself in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes. And when we confront somebody, I think that's a good practice. Ask yourself, I've got to go and talk to them about this and they're not going to like it. How would I respond if somebody came to me and said, Bill, I need to talk to you about something that you're involved with. You're not going to like this conversation. It's not going to be comfortable. How, how would I want somebody to handle that with me? And so that's what Daniel is doing. He's trying to understand the king. Now the next T in truth, T-R-U-T-H, think it through, reveal your heart, seek to understand their situation. The next T stands for tell it like it is. 
Don't mince words. Don't, ba- don't just dance around the bush. Just tell them the essentials of what they need to know. Look at what it says in verse 22. It's you, king. It's you. Nathan the prophet did the same thing with David when he confronted him with his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. You are the man, O king. For you've become great and grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven, saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beast of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Lord, of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beast of the field and you be given grass to eat like the cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until, underline that word until, highlight it, put an asterisk by it, until, until, until you recognize that the Most High inference Most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. T-R-U-T-H, the H stands for hold up grace. Hold up, if you're confronting someone, bring grace into the conversation as best you can. And that's what Daniel is doing. Now, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to see it as it's lived out in Nebuchadnezzar's life. But Daniel is saying, hey, king, there's, there's going to come a time out there where there may be an opportunity for you to turn this thing around in your favor. The dream bothers you, and it should. But listen to what he says. He says in verse 26, and in that the stump was, and in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after, after, until after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, listen to this, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your, of your prosperity. In the margin of your Bible, write the word repent. Daniel is saying, king, this, this bothers you, it bothers me, and I'm telling you what the dream is about, but there's an opportunity here maybe for you to avert, for you to avoid the situation. Repent, turn away from what's happening here. Let God deal with your sins. That's the dream revealed. Now look at the dream realized. Verse 28, all of this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. Not not one of the smaller palaces, the big palace. Twelve months passed. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar thought back on his conversation with Daniel from time to time. But he was saying to himself, you know, nothing has happened to me. I'm fine. Everything's good. It's all great. And look at what happens here. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great? Can't you see him walking on the roof of the palace here? Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? 
You think things were good at the beginning of this chapter, a year before? Things are even better now in the mind of King Nebuchadnezzar. And let me tell you something, folks. You have a palace in your own life. It may not be brick and mortar, but in your own heart, there is a place where there exists a throne where your and my life is ruled. And when we are walking on the roof of our own personal palaces, we also can fall into this, you know, I've done pretty good for myself, haven't I? And when you do that, watch out. King should have watched out. Look at verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. Immediately, immediately. See see the captivating words here? The word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. You talk about a dramatic scene in the palace. Now what I believe is that this occurred over a process of time. Immediately he went into this mode of being driven away from the palace. But I think it was over time. I don't know if it was a day or a week or a month or whatever. But the condition, ladies and gentlemen, there's a name for it. There is a clinical diagnosis that is called lycanthropy. Lyco meaning wolf. Anthropy meaning man. Lycanthropy. He became like a wolf man. Tearing at his clothes, bellowing out, probably uncontrollably, howling at the moon, if you think about it uh, this way. And he's driven out of the palace and he goes to live in the pasture. For seven years he's there. And the Bible said that his nails began to grow and his hair just was never cut. It was never combed. He was never groomed. It just Can you imagine what that was like? And they would see him out in the pasture eating grass in the morning, in the evening. And people were just watching over the king from a distance. I have a question here for you that I don't know the answer to, but I'd like to think that I know the answer. Who was in charge of the kingdom while these seven years were taking place and the king was out to pasture? Maybe Daniel. Maybe Daniel. You say, well, I I don't understand what's happening here. It's called the judgment of God. King Nebuchadnezzar had a pride problem. He's standing on his palace saying, look at all this. Haven't I done this? This is all for me, all for my glory. And you and I both know that at the root of every sin, every sin, every sin is pride. Pride. You and me saying, I'm not going to live life God's way. I'm going to live it my way. And sin we know can be a sin of omission, not doing what God commands us to do or doing in disobedience what God commands that we not do. Pride. Read Romans 1 when you get home this afternoon, and you know what you'll find? 
Paul reminding the Romans, this is New Testament. The Romans, by the way, were the most educated people in Paul's day. He says, I just want you to know you think you know everything. You continue to live life the way you want to live and there will come a point where God may say, okay, go ahead and live life your way. How about it? You say, well, isn't God all-powerful? Can he, can he prevent it? He, he can. But there are times where he says, you're going to reap the consequences of the life you've chosen. And that's what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. As a matter of fact, I would say that when you and I pursue living life our way to a point, we become animalistic so consumed with our own selves and self-perseverance and self-promotion that we become animalistic in living life that way. But quickly, let me show you the dream redeemed. Verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. It's the language of Jesus in Luke 15 as he talks about that prodigal son, that younger son who took his inheritance and went and squandered it. And in the feeding of the pigs, in that moment, Jesus said, he came to his senses this morning driving up. I was... I started out my drive in a fog, a thick fog. And I don't know whether the symbolism is here or not, but I got to the exit where there was Vaden. You know Vaden, just a few miles down the road? Fog was gone. <laughs> don't know what that symbolism is, if any. But I thought to myself, this is the point in Nebuchadnezzar's life where the fog cleared and the sun came out. And look at what it says. I blessed the Most High, Most High God, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Verse 36, at that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Look at this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those. Here's that verse from Job. Those who walk in pride. If you ask me, is Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? I will tell you, I think there's evidence that Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven. He went through this life-changing, life-altering experience. A crisis of a magnitude that I hope none of us ever experienced. But finally, when he came to the end, he said, there's a better way to live. And I will seek to honor the Most High God with my life. 
a crazy king who was rescued by the God of heaven. If I ever preach this sermon again, I think I'm going to title it The Conversion of a Pagan King. There's a lot of applications that we can make to this. As Christians, we need to be careful that we don't distance ourselves too much from God as we focus on ourselves more than we focus on Him. For a person who's an unbeliever, all I can say is we don't need to ever give up on them. You never know when God's going to use an experience, maybe like a dream, I don't know, but any kind of experience to draw them to Himself. And when they lift up their eyes, like we would lift up our eyes to the cross. Have you ever wondered why they put Jesus on the cross? You say, well, it was God's way of redeeming mankind. Yes, but I'm talking about why did God choose to use crucifixion for redemption? Because he's in an elevated state. And as we come to the cross, in order for us to be saved, we must lift up our eyes to see him there, paying the price for our sins. As Christians, we live our lives not focused on this world, but lifting up our eyes to heaven. We are kingdom people. We are heaven focused. We're heaven bound. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He didn't write this poem. A lady by the name of Lori Klein wrote it, but I want you to listen to it. I'd walked life's way with an easy tread, had followed where comforts and pleasures led. Until one day in a quiet place, I met the master face to face. With station and rank and wealth for my goal, much thought for my body, but none for my soul. I'd entered to win in life's mad race when I met the master face to face. I'd built my castles and built them high with their domes, had pierced the blue of the sky. I'd sworn to rule with an iron mace when I met the master face to face. I met him and knew him and blushed to see that his eyes full of sorrow were fixed on me. And I faltered and fell at his feet that day while my castles melted and vanished away. Melted and vanished in their place, naught else did I see but the master's face. And I cried aloud, O oh, make me meek to follow the steps of thy wounded feet. My thought is now for the souls of men. I've lost my life to find it again. Ere since one day in a quiet place, I met the master face to face. Father, I pray that you would take this message, apply it to any and every life here. Teach us the principles of your word and by your Holy Spirit, help us to live by them. I pray, Father, that in the quietness of this place, if there is any person, young or old, who's yet to publicly acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord of their life, that they would come to a realization that they too are living full of pride. And through repentance of their sins and in faith trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Give them the freedom and courage to come even this morning and say, yes, that is the life I choose to live from this day forward. 
Father, if there are Christians here looking for a church home, because your spirit would lead them, let them come to unite with our church family because we receive members in many ways. Let them come and say, how can we belong and be a part of this church family? Use us any way you see fit, Father, for you alone are sovereign. Through Jesus we pray.